The people of Fiji have decided to back Frank Bainimarama as their new prime minister, even though nearly eight years ago he ousted the democratic government in a military coup. The coup culture has been a constant in Fiji since the late 1980s, when military leader Sitavini Drambuka overthrew the government twice in one year. But how has the Pacific nation changed under the most recent regime, and where is the country going now? Radio New Zealand Insights speaks to community leaders in Fiji about their hopes for the future. I, Josiah Bolegi Wainmanama, being appointed as Prime Minister, swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to the Republic of Fiji and that I will obey. Frank Bainimarama was sworn into office as Prime Minister after winning a landslide victory with his Fiji First Party. The former military commander has been ruling Fiji by decree since he seized power in 2006. I'm Philippa Tolley and I was in Fiji to report on those significant elections and to speak to people about the state of the country now and what their hopes are for the future. Early voting papers are counted at the tallying centre in Suva shortly after the polls closed. It was a long process and it would be another four days before the final result was declared, a resounding 60% of the vote for the party representing the administration of Frank Panimarama. The election was a significant shift from the situation in December 2006 when, as military commander, Commodore Panimarama had just overthrown the government of the day. There is no point in debating the legalities or otherwise of our actions. Garase and his cronies are not coming back. The military is trying hard to keep life as normal as possible, and we will continue to try and keep it so. But should we be pushed to use force, let me state that we will do so very quickly. The reintroduction of a democratically elected administration had been demanded by the international community ever since the military takeover. But despite earlier promises of an election, in 2009 the president, Rato Josefa Ilo Ilo, abrogated the constitution and dismissed all judges. The move came a day after the Court of Appeal declared the ousting of the elected government of Lysenian Garase illegal. The president then reinstalled Frank Bainimarama as prime minister and brought in emergency rule, increasing the powers of the security forces and sanctioning media censorship. Those emergency rules were lifted at the start of 2012 and a controversial constitution pulled together by the administration came into effect just over a year ago. Those years have left a definite legacy. For those at the bottom end of society, life has got tougher. Tavita's daughter-in-law is sweeping the veranda of her home in a squatter settlement just outside the centre of Suva. Tavita says his family has been living in this basic home since he was small. So at your home here, how many of you live here? Uh, I have uh, two families, myself, uh, my son and uh, his wife with four children. How many rooms have you got for everybody to live in? Um, Two, three, four. Four rooms, a kitchen and a sitting room. Despite the cramped and basic conditions, Tavita celebrates the closeness of the community. It's a village set up uh, so when there's no salt in the house, so I just go and see my cousin brother on the other side, please. So that is how we live along uh, in this area. 
So that's a, a plus side of the squatter settlement, is that everybody works together? Oh yes, uh, it's a network uh, uh, of uh, people uh, living under the same roof, and the big umbrella is the squatter. And I think we, we sort of live uh, fairly okay. And that asking a, a, a squatter uh, of your needs, and uh, I think that is, that is the main one, that is beautiful. Although there are water and electricity supplies, along with a network of concrete paths running between the corrugated iron shacks, it's a challenging place to live, especially during the rainy season or when there's a health crisis, such as an outbreak of dysentery. A group that works extensively with the squatter settlements is the People's Community Network. Father Kevin Barr works as a consultant for the group and he acknowledges the popularity of some of the former regime's work, including free bus fares and school fees for the lowest earners. He says Frank Bainimarama and some of his ministers did show a keen interest in helping the squatters and formalising more of the city's settlements was one of the election promises of the winning Fiji First Party. Father Barr says there's also been a great deal of focus on education in the rural areas and on roads. But of course that helps not only village people but it also helps big business and uh, so it's, it helps both but that's good. At least it's, it means a lot of people can get their produce to market whereas they couldn't before. So those roads have been uh, a blessing for them. But the enormous problem besetting Fiji is poverty. And it's not only those who are below the poverty line, but those who are just above it. And uh, so if you take those into account, you've probably got about two-thirds of your population, and that's a very worrying situation, you know, because people are just above the poverty line. Uh, officially, they're not in poverty, but uh, anything happens, death of a breadwinner or a lack of employment, whatever happens, and down they go into poverty. He says along with the global financial crisis, local changes over the last eight years have contributed to an increase in the number of those struggling to survive. Because in 2011, we had a devaluation of our currency by 20%. And I thought at the time, OK, everything goes up 20%. And the Bureau of Stats told me, no, 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 you're wrong. Food went up 36%. Building materials went up 29, nearly 30%. So it was a devaluation of the currency by 20%, <clears throat> but it meant that in fact food went up 36%, building costs 30%. Then, not, on, not long after that, only within a year, valuated tax fat was increased from 125 to 15%. So those two things coming one on top of the other really meant <clears throat> that the poor were really hard hit. Father Barr says with that increased cost of living, people have struggled to pay for things such as medical care, and he says there have been cases of children dying because they were taken for treatment too late. He says while the poor were suffering, businesses were helped to survive the downturn created by the military takeover and the international financial climate. In what he describes as crony capitalism, top tax rates were reduced while wage increases were restricted. And at the same time, there was opposition to those speaking out on behalf of the workers, the union movement. Basically, these decrees emasculated the unions and uh, um, really prevented them from, uh, from meeting and having effective voice in the country. Uh, some of the leaders of the unions were actually belted up. <laughs> and uh, yes, there was a whole resistance to the union movement.
and uh, some nasty things were said about them, uh, the leaders of the, the unions. Uh, so yes, the decrees were very, very negative. At a political rally just days before the election, the then Attorney General and Minister of Elections, Ayaz Sayed Kayum, looked to the future, but also talked up the government's record over the preceding years. Everybody wants economic prosperity. We all want to improve our living conditions, our, our lives, our wages, the benefits we get. The only way that Fiji will ever progress is that you have consistency in policies. You have a government that can plan for the future. You have a government that looks down the line 10, 15, 20 years, where do we want to be? When they build roads, they know that in 10 years' time, we'll need to double lane it. When they plan for the future, when they do a housing development, they know the population will increase in a particular area. If there is consistency in policies, the investors, the businessmen, the businesswomen, they'll all invest because they know the government won't change the laws overnight. That focus on investment and jobs has been welcomed by Fiji's business community. The CEO of the Fiji Commerce and Employer Federation, Nisbet Hazelman, is bullish about what's ahead, saying there are about $65 million worth of projects waiting to start. Can I get you a tea or coffee? Uh, or a just, just give me a uh, Fiji water. Yeah. Naka. We meet at one of the most impressive new ventures in recent times, the Grand Pacific Hotel, an historic colonial building reopened earlier this year after it had sat crumbling and dilapidated for nearly two decades. Nisbet Hazelman is realistic about the impact of the coup of 2006 and previous interruptions to normal government. After every sort of political upheaval, there has been a sort of slum in, in Fiji's economy. Uh, business growth has been very, very sluggish. Uh, economic growth has uh, suffered quite uh, significantly. But as we move along, uh, the trend seems to change. Um, new confidence has come in. Young entrepreneurs have come onto the scene and taken advantage of the opportunities that exist in Fiji. Uh, the, um, the older uh, businesses have uh, again stayed and weathered the storm and have reinvested in, in, their, in their operations. And all these uh, initiatives have has seen um, um, uh, Fiji uh, sort of uh, weather the storm, so to speak. And so we see a bright future for Fiji in the next few years. Frank Barnimarama's government reduced company and top tax rates and restricted wage increases as the country faced economically hard times. Returns in the tourism sector are still not as buoyant as they could be, and the sugar industry, which directly or indirectly supports hundreds of thousands of people, is also struggling. But Nisbet Hazelman doesn't see the future for Fiji as a low-wage economy competing against parts of Asia. Uh, we have a, a, a manufacturing base currently in Fiji that we'd like to keep in Fiji. Uh, it's important for us, it's important for jobs, it's important for the 17,000 school leavers every year to have uh, an opportunity to enter the workforce. So whilst we see Asia as a, as a sort of competition or, or somewhere we can benchmark off now, we're saying that what we need to do is, is, is build our niche sort of manufacturing so we can compete at the high end. And with this sort of competition at the high end, naturally it should bring higher wages to our people in Fiji. So we, we, we don't like to see ourselves paying the lowest wages in the region. That's not our position. 
While he promotes efforts to support business, Nisbet Hazelman does see a need for change. He believes the government needs to roll back some of the suppression of trade unions of the past few years and to give them a greater say. And he welcomes the return of parliamentary opposition. For, for us in the, in the business sector, it's important that we have the checks and balances in place. And we're, we're so uh, sort of uh, over the moon with the fact that we have some very credible people who seem to have come through. Uh, and we're excited by that fact that uh, we'll have uh, a bit more debate on issues of concern of, for, for everybody, including business in Fiji. However, the way some of the decisions about infrastructure and development were made in the past eight years worries Fiji's former vice president, Ratujoni Mandrawiwi. Ratujoni was forced from office at the same time as the elected government was overthrown. While he commends much of the work done to build roads, bridges, health centres and schools, he has questions about the process. I think at the same time it's also a reflection of the command structure of the government in the sense that it's an arbitrary government and the Prime Minister is head of the government and as a former military person is able to deploy resources uh, quite swiftly um, ignoring the um, systems in place and I think that can work for a short while but I think over the long term it undermines the systems themselves. So. I think post-election, this MO will probably have to be reviewed. Another aspect of the regime's time and power that causes Ratujoni some disquiet is the state of the nation's books, especially the level of debt. Uh, the role and influence of, uh, of China in, um, in uh, Fiji's affairs, particularly in its economy, has, uh, has grown markedly. The fact that we are quite... Uh, significantly in debt to Chinese institutions and financiers is a concern. Does anybody know how much in debt Fiji is? Uh, no, because the government has not really been forthcoming on the figures. An independent economist and former professor of economics at the University of the South Pacific, Wadanasi, says the average person is just focused on the pluses of any development. When you have a population which is not very uh, uh, well versed you know, about public finance, when you have uh, political parties which are not allowed to question the government and raise issues, as we have been for eight years, uh, the average person in the street does not understand that a government can deliver or promise lots and lots of freebies without having the capacity to pay for it. And that by borrowing uh, uh, increasingly to cover deficits, uh, all that will happen is that we will end up in the same way as Greece and Portugal did during the you know, financial crisis. Ratajoni expects the levels of borrowings could be quite significant and believes they could have an influence on the shape of economic policies in the future. But he's also optimistic about Fiji's ability to bounce back. Now elections have been held. Given that we've had at least four coups, I think uh, our resilience is, is, um, is quite remarkable. So I also think that given the, uh, the proper circumstances, having uh, an elected government in place will perhaps create the environment to be able to build on that into the future. But that positive outlook is not shared by Dr Nasi. He believes there will be a resurgence of investment and growth may well pick up, but the underlying problems remain. We are now doing this over and over again. You know, we have allowed, you know, uh, coups to happen. And then the, the people who do the coups, everybody recognizes it's illegal, it's treasonous, their, their reasoning, justification were all false, right? But then 
they rewrite the constitution. And this is the worst one because it has had no popular approval. At least the 97 constitution, which granted Rambuka immunity, you know, was approved by parliament. So, and, and it grants immunity again to the people who did the coups. And the immunity stretches from 2000 to 2014. Now, some of us, you know, who, who believe, genuinely believe in that justice should apply equally to all, you know, we have also seen the same government, you know, imprisoned former prime ministers, it's, it's imprisoned, you know, opponents of the regime. So, you know, really the, the, the formula is there. I mean, you know, any former, any commander in future, if he wants to do a, uh, a coup, take over government, run the place for six, seven, eight years, benefit enormously from it, you know, as, as these military people have over the last eight years, and then grant themselves immunity, you know, in in the constitution. I mean, it's, it's, that cycle is not going to end. While the traditional role for the media is to hold those in authority to account and to track how public money is spent. Restrictions on media freedom in Fiji has curtailed what it's been possible to do. But the appetite for news in Suva is strong. Any newspapers? Uh, no more newspapers. From 9 o'clock there wasn't any more newspaper, like Fiji Times especially. And then we had few Fiji Sun and then all are sold by now. Maybe the people are interested in seeing what are the results after the elections. A lack of media freedom has been one of the constant criticisms levelled at the regime. The president of the Fijian Media Association, Ricardo Morris, says while in the past few months the restrictions have eased, the media have been confined since the military takeover. During that eight years, and especially after the media decree came into force, we, we really, you know, we had to reorient ourselves in everything we had known about journalism and how we had practised it, and now we have... Uh, a decree which uh, outlines how we should do things and the limits that we have. So we've had to get our head around that and then now we've also had to realise that, you know, we're now back to democracy, getting back to democracy. We now have to open up and not be so afraid to ask and to ask questions and to especially holding those in power to account. I think that is where we have to find get ourselves back to. When the military first took over, there were censors monitoring output. Then it became self-censorship, with new rules over media ownership and pressure on individuals who continue to criticise those now in power. Ricardo Morris explains how a media code of conduct was subsumed into a media decree. Now the difference is there's also penalties for breaches of, of certain things. So there's, uh, I think, uh, one of the major sections that, are, that is quite vague is the one that refers to breach of the public interest and that's not defined and so you know there, there are fines and terms of imprisonment prescribed in the media decree I mean thankfully no one has yet been uh, has yet been charged or fined, fined or imprisoned under the media decree but the fact that it's there uh, is, is, has a big influence on what, what we do he says the media decree seems likely to stay given the regime that introduced the restrictions is now in power, but he feels there are ways to work within the system. Limits on reporting is something the multinational group of observers in Fiji to monitor the elections has indicated it might raise in its final report. But Ricardo Mora says having a parliament and the protection of privilege will be a huge change. That will open up a lot of space that you know a lot of journalists in Fiji have never experienced before. So the fact that you can report you know blunt criticisms against an opponent will probably be 
surprising for a lot of journalists. But I think uh, when they, once they get the hang of it, things should start to improve. Along with the media restrictions, human rights violations have attracted constant criticism from the international community. In the past few months, Amnesty International spoke of a need to change a climate where those who were critical of the government found themselves subject to the effects of draconian laws, a pattern of intimidation and harassment. It said the climate of fear was compounded by repeated reports from human rights activists of Fijian security forces using torture and other ill treatment against people in custody. The head of the Fiji women's rights movement and a former human rights commissioner, Shamima Ali, says some of the measures brought in in the last eight years, such as abolishing the Great Council of Chiefs or GCC, have been positive. We don't like racist policies. We've always lobbied to get rid of it. So we, we got some of that. We actually got leaders, and particularly indigenous leaders, standing up and saying this is what we want for once. Yeah? And, uh, and actually um, legislating it putting it down in the constitution and so on, though we should have had more consultation around that, but that happened. Um, the Great Council of Chiefs, a lot of us have been asking, including indigenous Fijians, uh, young professionals have been asking what is the point, you know, and I believe that it needed a bit of, it needed reviewing. But she also feels many of her rights have been taken away. I totally resent the freedoms that have been curtailed by this regime. I have never in my life, I have lived through 1987, 2000, being an activist, I have never felt so restricted and, and so much the loss of freedom as I have done over the last eight years. And a lot of my colleagues will tell you the same. And, uh, you know, we're sort of really measuring our words, who we're speaking to, we're not free in the media, how we say it, so our stories get reported, you know. So those freedoms. Um, the, the, the workers' rights issues, the issue of uh, retiring people at 55 with no consultation, their lives came to an end. Many people who had planned you know, their lives, their lives came to an end, professionals and so on, particularly in the civil service, the police force and so on. The double standards that are applied, nepotism, the lack of accountability, transparency, the Auditor General's report uh, that we haven't seen for the last seven or eight years, seven years. You know? So all those things are things that that this is the Fiji of today. She says the newly elected government now has an opportunity to build a strong Fiji with human rights at its core, repeal the human rights decree and reintroduce a human rights commission. But others lack confidence that the culture of suppressing individual rights will change. One of two independents who stood unsuccessfully in the election, Rashika Deo, said during the run-up to the vote that she and other parties were being monitored by police. She fears that attitude will prevail. I, I'm a little bit apprehensive that maybe how the country was operating in the last five, six years, that's exactly how we're going to operate, except we, may, we have an opposition. So the opposition would be raising a lot of issues which would, become, which would create a little bit more transparency uh, and accountability. But uh, the certain decrees, for instance, that needs to go that is oppressing and restricting our human rights. So like the administration of justice decree that prevents judicial review and challenging of decisions, the media decree, the essential national services decree, um, there's a few other decrees that need to go, but I don't, it won't go, uh, because uh, the majority is with the very same uh, government that created these decrees. Although such fears persist, the international community has signalled its acceptance of the vote for a democratically elected government. 
The Pacific Islands Forum, which excluded Fiji after the coup, described the election as marking a critical turning point for the nation, and a ministerial contact group will now assess the situation with an eye to bring Fiji back into the fold. Fiji is also excluded from the Commonwealth, but its Secretary-General, Kamli Sharma, has made similarly supportive comments about the poll. The European Union's delegate to the Pacific says a return to full aid support for Fiji should happen within a few months following the elections. Speaking just days before the vote, Frank Bainimarama told Insight he expects relations with the region to continue to improve. For about eight years I wasn't allowed to go to Australia and New Zealand. I went to Australia and New Zealand a couple of, years, a couple of weeks ago. So that's easy stuff. Because they know we've worked hard at... Uh, get into a democratic uh, uh, parliament. And while still questioning some aspects of the voting process, the political parties that will now make up the parliamentary opposition are focusing on the positives of having an elected government. The paramount chief, Rote Mumu Kepa, is the head of the biggest opposition party, the largely indigenous Fijian bat Sidelpa, which will hold 15 seats in the new 50-seat parliament. The National Federation Party will hold three. Rote Mumu told a news conference the opposition will now be able to hold the administration of Frank Bainimarama to account. So after eight years of no opposition, the people now have 18 MPs in the House to keep the government in check and accountable. The upside of these elections for all of you who have stayed true to your moral integrity is that from the first day of the sitting of the new parliament, accountability returns to Fiji. Opposition MPs will have access to government documentation and, in, and information. And as the opposition, we now have a platform from which to launch our pursuit of the truth. And we will expose all of the shortcomings of the government on an ongoing basis. The head of the National Federation Party, Dr. Beeman Prasad, says he'll be insisting the opposition gets the government's support its due. We expect the government uh, to ensure that there is a smooth functioning of the parliament and that adequate resources are provided to all members of parliament, including uh, backbenchers in the uh, government side, uh, so that uh, members of parliament can exercise their rights in uh, in not only raising questions about uh, issues that government uh, uh, policies or issues relating to government policy, but also issues that they would like to raise on behalf of the people. Others hold wider hopes for major changes that will help all of the people of Fiji improve their lives. Father Barr's first wish is for the government to boost the minimum wage from the current $2 an hour. Really, low wages is one of the biggest causes of poverty in the country. When you've got 65% of your population earning below the poverty line, it's no wonder that you've got so many people in poverty. So um, wages are a key issue in the alleviation of poverty. And uh, it really, it's not a matter of charity, it's a matter of justice, you know. That's my wish anyway. <laughs> and the former Vice President, Ratu Jonimandrawiwi, has a strong desire for his country to move beyond the coup culture. I hope that it is able to develop in a stable manner in terms of both its democracy, the rule of law and economic growth and that it learns to deal with issues and challenges not by way of coups 
by way of negotiations, by way of uh, debate, by way of uh, having elections everyone accepts and, and moves on from there. And an almost universal hope is that there will be more elections in four years' time. Philippa Tolley, and that's this week's Insight, including additional reporting by Sally Round. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Gail Woods with technical production by Mark Chesterman.